This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love It podcast. This is episode two in our three-part series in the first work of Albert Camus' great cycle of absurdity. It's the novella L'Etranger, or The Stranger, also called The Outsider. How was my French that time? Very good. Uh, <laughs> Well, last week we began discussing Camus' life and his homeland, um, Algeria, and the events, uh, both political and personal, that made him, in many ways, uh, his own outsider. We also introduced the idea that it is forever associated with Camus in literary as well as philosophical circles, and that is the concept of the absurd. We'll be using that word a lot today. So we tried to flesh out a little bit of what that feels like, uh, you know, the world, the way Camus would have us understand it. We tried to introduce it as a feeling really more than an idea, although obviously it is both. And uh, we started with the famous first line, Maman died today or yesterday, maybe, I don't know. It's absurd today, maybe yesterday. That's absurd. <laughs> <laughs> and the even more important idea. I don't know. I mean, this itself launches us into a, a world from which some of us may never return. You know, the world of the absurd, the world world of Merceau, our really absurd hero. Well, hopefully we'll feel fare slightly better than Merceau, who I'll tell you right now is not famous because of the awesomeness of the outcome of this story. This guy is not Forrest Gump, who by no design of his own ends up in the White House or makes millions in the, you know, shrimp industry. Although I do think Forrest Gump is slightly absurd <laughs> in another you, way. I think you're on an absurdity tangent. I know. Absurd is a thread you could just keep pulling, but I won't. Instead, let's pull back into the rational world, because today we want to start out by giving a shout out to a friend of the podcast, 
A man who lives far from the world of absurd on most days, Mr. Matt Francev. Matt teaches AP Lit and honors English at Whittier High School in Whittier, California. His brother, Dr. Peter Francev, is editor of the Albert Camus Society and a true scholar when it comes to the body of work, the entirety of Camus' writings, of which the cycle of the absurd is just the beginning. Anyway, Matt reached out to us a couple months ago uh, I guess it was right before Christmas, and asked us to feature Camus in the familiar classic, The Stranger, and so we have. Matt, this series is for you, and we hope we can do right by an old friend of the Francev family, and we hope that we can do something that Camus may find slightly paradoxical, and that is to manage to put the absurd into manageable bite-sized pieces. <laughs> <laughs> That's not asking much, is it? No. Well, you know, before we do that, uh, I do want to point out something cool about where Matt is investing his life and career in Whittier, California. It's about 15 miles south of Los Angeles, and that area itself is an incredibly um, diverse working-class community. But what's unusual about the high school there is that it has an eclectic yet notable list of alumni. Two names on that list many will recognize. Number one is former President Richard Nixon, but also totally outside the world of politics, John Lasseter, the creator of Pixar, for those of you who like cartoons. You wonder if those two guys ever ran across each other. <laughs> not, a, not in the same lifetime. And if that's not interesting enough for your average high school, perhaps even more notable is that the school itself was the setting for Hill Valley High School, that would be the high school Michael J. Fox's parents attended in the uh, breakout movie Back to the Future. How fun is that? Well, and that's how Nixon and Lasseter could meet each other. There you go. <laughs> Going back to the future. It's fun. And I wonder how many times they played Johnny Be Good on the stage in the auditorium. Oh, who knows? <laughs> I wonder what the real auditorium even looks like. You know, anyway. Thanks, Matt, for reaching out and sharing a little of your world with us. And today our goal is to finish out our discussion of part one of this novel. And Christy, last week um, you told us we should wait in anxious expectation for an episode filled with boredom and meaninglessness. <laughs> uh, so we're supposed to be anxious and excited about being bored and meaningless. And especially there at the beginning, we, we met that expectation. But chapter two is not filled with action that could be described really as riveting. No, not a whole lot happens in chapter two if you're looking for plot, which most of us do. And it's not a lot looking to look forward to if you're looking for theme or deep character development. It's just not a lot that's going on. <laughs> <laughs> no, it starts with a day after Maman's funeral and uh, we meet Marie, who will become something of a girlfriend to Marceau. And uh, Camus' descriptions draw particular attention to Marie's breasts. But these descriptions are vulgar, and they're not suggestive, really. And uh, this is not your typical romantic description from a Harlequin romance. Not that I've ever read any of those. <laughs> you know. And it clearly ends with sex, but not with passion. And, uh, you know, sex, of course, at its minimum, is an expression of excitement. Even crude sitcoms can figure that out and go that far. But... Many times when stories uh, feature sex, the authors are expressing deep emotions. And uh, relationship sex is the ultimate expression of intimacy and something we, as humans, really attach a lot of deep meaning to, but not for our absurd hero, Merceau. He is an outsider even in that regard. Uh, for Merceau, he meets a woman, has sex with her, 
He, she goes home before he wakes up. He smokes cigarettes in bed until 11 a.m. He gets up to eat eggs out of a pan and then expresses boredom with zero reflection on all that has happened over the last 48 hours to him. Instead of reflection, his thoughts turn to the size of his apartment where he concludes that it's too big for just one person. I mean, this guy is super detached. He fa- he fails the attachment test everywhere. <laughs> Is he a psychopath or a nut job? Yes, and you know, you know, we know we don't think he's either one of those. Sure. Um, he's apathetic for sure, uh, but in a way, we're supposed to understand. Merceau has understood a few truths in this world, and now he's stuck. He's gotten far enough into exploring the meaning of existence to arrive at this point of lostness. Very intuitively, he's hit upon the notion that human reasoning is insufficient in fulfilling the very human but fundamental desire to find unity in our world. We want things to connect, to make sense. The universe should mean something. There should be a plan. We're wired like that. And yet there are needs in our hearts that aren't reasonable. Logic, the things we know for sure about the world, these don't match up and there's things that are just not enough to satisfy us. Merceau keeps voicing this with this refrain. It doesn't matter. When he puts things in cosmic order, he understands his mother's death really just doesn't matter, not in the grand scheme of things. This relationship he has with this woman, well, it just doesn't matter. His job just doesn't matter. And so his response is to detach himself from all of it. Why should he attach himself to things if they just don't matter? What's the point? And yet, pointlessness leaves him bored. It's also leaving him inert. He doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't make decisions. Why should he? Nothing matters. Camus writes, I said the world is absurd, but I was too hasty. This world in itself is not reasonable, and that is all that can be said. But what is absurd is the confrontation of this irrational world and the wild longing for clarity which call whose call echoes in the human heart the absurd depends as much on man as it does on the world well in other words what he's trying to say it's not that nothing matters is that's not the problem the fact that we keep looking for things to matter and that's where craziness happens (laughs) whoa so uplifting you know in in the preface of the english edition uh camus describes merceau and really, he's not describing him as much as he's defending him. So uh, I want to take a minute to read what Camus has told us about his protagonist that he created here. He says, The hero of the book is condemned because he doesn't play the game. In this sense, he is a stranger to the society in which he lives. He drifts in the margin in the suburb of private, solitary, sensual life. This is why some readers are tempted to consider him as a waif. You will have a more precise idea of his character, or one at all events in closer conformity with the intentions of the author, if you ask yourself in what way Merceau doesn't play the game. The answer is simple. He refuses to lie. Lying is not only saying what is not true, and as far as the human heart is concerned, saying more than one feels. This is what we all do every day to simplify life. Merceau, despite appearances, does not wish to simplify life. He says what is true. He refuses to disguise his feelings, and immediately society feels threatened. 
There's more, and we don't have time to read it all. But, you know, Camus goes on to say that Merceau is a man who, and again, I quote, is poor and naked, in love with the sun, which leaves him no shadows. And far from it uh, being true that he lacks all sensibility, you know, a, a deep, tenacious passion animates him, a passion for the absolute and for truth. And it is still negative truth, that truth of being and feeling, but one without which no victory over oneself and over the world will ever be possible. Again, and this is still recapping the general idea of last week, Merceau refuses to do what Camus calls philosophical suicide in his companion piece, The Myth of Sisyphus. He won't buy into an easy answer that will keep him from facing reality to simplify things, as Camus said. Merceau wants to really see his life with clarity, that's what Camus is calling honesty. It's not because he doesn't lie, and he will lie. He lies for Raymond, and we'll see that, and I find it despicable. But he won't lie to Marie about loving her or to the nursing home people about wanting to see his mother. Camus says this, and I know we're quoting Camus' other writings a lot, but I think they kind of help inform his story. He says this, I understand, then, why the doctrines that explain everything to me also debilitate me at, some t at the same time. They relieve me of the weight of my own life, and yet I must carry it alone. So in other words, when explaining or simplifying the world to ourselves, we can do this maybe through religious terms, economic terms, political terms, whatever terms we want to. Maybe we can numb the burden of suffering to some degree, but the cost of that is personal honesty, and that might not be something we should do. You know, when I think about how to conceptualize this, for me, the easiest way to think of it is in terms of that movie, The Matrix. And that movie, some people don't know that they're basically vegetables in a machine concoction, but then there are others that do know but then they decide they don't care and they just plug themselves back into the machine. For Camus, plugging yourself in is the no-go. You must face your own reality. Knowing that it is absurd, you just have to. <laughs> the Matrix is a great example. Um, when Camus says Merceau doesn't lie, he means it. Merceau won't live in a Matrix. And just like in the movie, this is a threat. It makes everyone uncomfortable. And, you know, uh, having said that in his defense, it is not possible to read this and not be uncomfortable with Marceau, uh, you know, with his choices, with his inertia, which is such a perfect word to describe him, you know, with his inability to exercise any agency of any kind, uh, you know, especially when he witnesses and even participates in some pretty horrific things culminating in an actual death. Yes, and now we have finally reached the theme of this episode. Last week, we laid down the premise of the absurdity of life, which we've just revisited. We laid down the premise that we're all just specks in the universe, which creates this absurdity of life, life that goes on with or without us, and that we will eventually disappear from completely. Another big point. But what bothers Camus the most, and we see it bothering Miss Merceau, it's not just those two things. It's this third idea that we want to add today. If all of this is true, then why the heck can I not shake this burden of guilt that the universe has laid upon me? That is the piece that doesn't make sense. It's the question that threads the narrative subtextually from beginning to end. And although it is subtle, as guilt often ends, is... 
It bears down mercilessly like that cruel and penetrating sun. We pointed it out last week when it showed up on the first page because Merceau feels the need to defend his choice of putting his mother in the home as if someone were judging him for that. And indeed, we're going to find out this week that Salomano tells him people are actually judging him behind his back for that. He feels judged for his decision not to see her dead body. He feels guilty for drinking coffee and smoking a cigarette with the caretaker. When his mother's friends come in, he actually says this, and I quote, For a second, I had the ridiculous feeling that they were there to judge me. He doesn't know his mother's exact age. That's highlighted, something he feels guilty about. I point these things out because they all come back as reasons to judge him when he is actually in a literal trial. At the funeral procession with the sun glaring down, he's confronted with a woman who says this to him, and I'm going to quote again. If you go slowly, you risk getting sunstroke. But if you go too fast, you work up a sweat and then catch a chill inside the church. To which Merceau thinks this thought. She was right. There is no way out. (laughs) You know, one of those statements that's true on various levels, it's really kind of an epiphany in a way. Yes, and I think it's something like that. Now we're in chapter two, and Merceau tells Marie that his mom has died. She looks at him as if to judge him, and he wants to again justify himself with the same line he told his boss, that it wasn't his fault, but he decides not to, because now he's acknowledged something a little deeper. There's been a progression here that we're going to follow through the story. He says this, you always feel a little guilty. So what do you think that means? Uh, Of course, it's true, and it's extremely normal to feel guilt when someone dies, and especially when someone you love dies, and Marceau did love his mother. I think that's uh, absolutely true. So in this case, you just can't help but feel responsible and guilty. Why do you say with such assurance that Marceau loved his mother? He claims that they were bored with each other, and lots of people later on are going to accuse him, maybe even of the exact opposite. Um, I say that because I'm a big believer in ignoring what people say and paying attention to what people actually do. So we can see from Marceau's behaviors that he did love his mother, and not just because he calls her mom, but he provided for her. Um, the reason he sent her to the home was because he didn't want her sitting in that house by herself. His concern was that she was bored and and he wanted what was best. And, you know, he's clearly a man with a modest income, and yet uh, he is her sole provider and he provides faithfully and there's no expression of resentment in him towards her. And uh, he seems happy to do it. And his guilt originates in love. And I think we're going to see that there is evidence he loves Marie, too, to some degree. But uh, Marcel's problem is not that he can't feel Marceau definitely can feel. He just can't get his mind to wrap around what his feelings mean. You know, feelings obviously aren't rational. Uh, They don't have a point. And for Marceau, that's a huge problem. You know, honestly, Camus expressing here this idea of not conforming to society's expectations of how you should express yourself is, again, something that resonates with so many teachers or let me just say with so many teenagers uh, when they read this book, but especially we see it uh, in high school, this idea of appearing apathetic when in reality it's not apathy, 
but numbness that you're experiencing, and that can get people in a lot of problems. In my world, it manifests itself sometimes with flunking grades. How many boys, and they usually are boys, I really think that's true, are made to sit in a chair with their teachers, their guidance counselors, their parents, sometimes all at the same time in the same room. And the general theme of the meeting is that they're there to tell the student that he simply doesn't care about his learning. Everyone is there because they care and they want him to understand how bad it is that he doesn't care about his education, his family, his life, all of which can be seen through a general apathy towards school. Perhaps he's skipping, perhaps there's drugs, there's troublemaking of one sort or another, and the student sits in agreement with the behaviors. But often the point that is incorrect is the diagnosis of apathy as the culprit. It's simple to say that a person or a student just doesn't care. But more often than not, the problem, paradoxically, maybe it's the opposite. It's the caring that causes the jam and causes the failing grades and all the other self-sabotaging behaviors. (laughs) Man, I've been in many of those meetings myself. And, uh, you know, the irony is really in the pointlessness of it all. The student feels guilty. Uh, That's never the problem. We can see that they feel guilty. Sometimes they might even cry. Often they feel badly for making their mothers come up to school at 6.30 in the morning, which is when we have parent meetings around here. Uh, They feel badly for not being able to make themselves do the work. They feel badly for the bad grades and the school skipping, the vaping in the bathroom, whatever it is they have going on. They feel badly for the shame of the confrontation. And, you know, the feeling of guilt is definitely overwhelming. But what does that do? When has guilt ever been a good motivator for success? You know, as with Merceau, guilt, um, especially this generalized, unspecific guilt, it just escalates into other bad things. Well, Kamehameha makes our absurd hero wrestle with this absurd problem. And if I were a character in the story, I'd probably be fussing at Merceau nonstop, although I know it would be futile. I can already hear myself saying, treat that girl better, take that promotion, stop hanging out with that garbage of a person. But in my estimation, Merceau runs hard in the wrong direction, or at least not in any direction that I would want him to go if I were his mother. He runs straight into his feelings of guilt and pushes those to an extreme point. Let's watch how this happens with each engagement. Uh, Yes. Well, the next engagement of no for me is Merceau running into his old neighbor, Salamano, and his dog. The relationship Salamano has with his dog is one Camus is strangely interested in. He describes the man and his dog almost like a miserable old married couple. On my way upstairs in the dark, I ran into old Salamano, my neighbor across the landing. He was with his dog. The two of them have been inseparable for eight years. The spaniel has a skin disease, mange, I think, which makes almost all of its hair fall out and leaves it covered with brown sores and scabs. And After living together for so long, the two of them alone in one tiny room, they've ended up looking like each other. Old Salamano has reddish scabs on his face and wispy yellow hair. As for the dog, he's sort of taken on his master's stooped look, muzzle down, neck straining. They look as if they belong to the same species, and yet they hate each other. Twice a day at 11 and 6, the old man takes the dog out for a walk. They haven't changed their route in eight years. You can see them in the Rue de Leon, the dog pulling the man along until old Salamano stumbles. Then he beats the dog and swears at it. 
The dog cowers and trails behind. Then it's the old man who pulls the dog. Once the dog is forgotten, it starts dragging its master along again and again gets beaten and sworn at. Then they both stand there on the sidewalk and stare at each other. The dog in terror, the man in hatred, it's the same thing every day. (laughs) Christy, what are we supposed to make of this terrible dog story? Well, that's always the question with Camus, isn't it? What are we supposed to make of it? I find myself judging uh, this man because he's cruel to his dog, but Merceau won't do that. He doesn't want to be judged, so he doesn't judge Salamano, just like he doesn't judge Ramon, and Ramon is absolutely one of the most terrible people in all of literature. I would stack him up against, I don't know, Catherine Earnshaw, Napoleon the Pig, Jack from... (laughs) Lord of the Plies, oh, Ramon. Oh, wow. That, that is a <laughs> lovely winning cast of characters to be compared to. Uh, yeah, he is a terrible person. He's a pimp, or at least he seems to be. He beats the the woman he lives with to the point that she bleeds, and yet Marceau won't judge him. In fact, later on, he's going to help him. Yes, and that irks me. He writes a letter for him. He lies for him. And at one point, Ramon asks Marceau what he thinks about all the horrible things he's done and plans on doing to the Moorish girl he's abusing. And Marflo flat out says he won't make moral judgments. He has no empathy for this girl either. He said he didn't think anything, but thought it was interesting. Talk about what comes across to a reader as absurd. His reaction to me is absurd. But after all of this, Camus only observes. At the end of chapter three, we read only this. All I could hear was the pounding in my ears. I stood there motionless. And in old Salamano's room, the dog whimpering softly. As Merceau absorbs what I would be considered two various obvious expressions of evil in the world, Camus creates what he calls a divorce between the world as it is and man's conception of the world as it ought to be. What he's describing here is the world as it is and not the world as I want it to be, where pets and women are held in places of tenderness, where respect for life is highly regarded, and where raw power isn't exercised so mercilessly. I think Camus has gotten under your skin. (laughs) Uh, obviously, you know, um, me being the non-literary side of the microphone right here, I find it very, very interesting that Camus keeps setting up situations that every human would have a strong reaction to, and then Merceau has no reaction to it. <laughs> you know, uh, and, it, it, you know, it goes on, and, and if life doesn't matter, um, as Merceau understands that it doesn't, um, if speckness is a reality, as it clearly is, If we feel guilt for things we aren't really guilty for because of some irrational force um, from the universe, then what difference does it make if a man abuses his dog and beats a woman he's had sex with mercilessly and violently and it just doesn't matter? Moral distinctives don't matter. I mean, can it get any more negative than this? Oh, yes, it can. And the offense doesn't end there. In chapter four, we circle back to Marie. The romance between these two is every bit as absurd as the violence of chapter three. Merceau wants Marie, as in the sexual sense, when he sees her in a red and white dress, make of those colors what you will. Uh, He notes her breast again. By the way, I'm not sure how to understand all of that. 
But anyway, they spend the day, they spend the night together. It's all very sensual. The next morning, instead of cutting out before Marceau wakes up, Marie sticks around. Marceau goes out and gets some meat for them. And then we have an odd juxtaposition of observations. Let's read those. That morning, Marie stayed and I told her that we would have lunch together. I went downstairs to buy some meat and on my way up stairs, I heard a woman's voice in Ramon's room. A little later, old Salamano growled at his dog and we heard the sound of footsteps and claws on the wooden stairs and then lousy stinking bastard and they went down into the street. I told Marie all about the old man and she laughed. She was wearing a pair of my pajamas with the sleeves rolled up. When she laughed, I wanted her again. A minute later, she asked me if I loved her. I told her it didn't mean anything, but that I didn't think so. She looked sad. (laughs) (laughs) This is not a Harlequin romance. Oh, I agree with Marie. I would be sad, too. This is terrible. But Merceau, you know, he doesn't say more than he feels. He doesn't make judgments. And sometimes, actually most of the time, he doesn't say anything. He's an outsider. He's a stranger. For Merceau, he couldn't see that any of it even mattered. Why should it? I think he believes that is the rational thing to believe. But I think there is something about this absurdity that refuses to let him find peace. You know, in uh, Chapter 6, his boss basically offers him a big promotion. Uh, he's offered an opportunity to work in Paris, to travel, to do all the things he would describe as being important. Uh, Marceau's reaction to this offer is as apathetic as his reaction to Raymond beating the pulp out of his mistress. I mean, he says to his boss that he isn't interested in a change of life. He says one life is as good as another. He's not dissatisfied with his life there in Algiers. Uh, But here's the crux of it. It doesn't matter. None of it mattered. You know, for the absurd hero, that's where you get to with everything. He says the same thing when Marie revisits their relationship. That evening, Marie came by to see me and asked me if I wanted to marry her. I said it didn't make any difference to me that we could if she wanted to. Then she wanted to know if I loved her. I answered the same way I had the last time, that it didn't mean anything, but that I probably didn't love her. So why marry me then, she said. I explained to her that it didn't really matter and that if she wanted to, we could get married. Besides, she was the one who was doing the asking and all I was doing was saying yes. Then she pointed out that marriage was a serious thing. I said no. She stopped talking for a minute and looked at me without saying anything. Then she spoke. She just wanted to know if I would have accepted the same proposal from another woman with whom I was involved in the same way. I said sure. Then she wondered if she loved me and there was no way I could know about that. After another moment's silence, she mumbled that I was peculiar, and that was probably why she loved me, but that one day I might hate her for the same reason. I didn't say anything, because I didn't have anything to add. Wow. (laughs) I mean, it's turning into a a refrain, nothing matters, nothing matters, nothing matters. Merceau dwells in a lot of silence, and for that reason alone, maybe nothing matters. He explains nothing because there's nothing to explain. He expresses almost no feelings to us, his readers, but ironically, as we will see during his trial, everyone that he knows defends him as being a pretty decent human being. Um, For the most part, he does right by the people in his life. His mother, Marie, Ramon, Salamano, even Celeste, the lady from the diner. 
That's not the problem. For Merceau, the problem is not whether he loved or didn't love his mother. The problem is that it doesn't matter if he did or if he didn't. It doesn't matter if he loves Marie. He's happy to marry her if she wants, but really the fact that they love each other or don't love each other, marry or don't marry, it just doesn't matter. And on and on he goes with everything in the world. For Camus, this is reality, and it can make you dizzy, and you can go around and around. It has to be where you start if you want to break out of the cycle of the absurd. You have to start at this point of being rationally honest. The problem is, once you find yourself at this basic existential understanding that life doesn't care about you, now you have the problem Rousseau is facing. At that point, how do you prevent total boredom? How do you make decisions? The outcomes don't matter. There are these two constant realities that we see in Rousseau's life in which I find incredibly annoying. He can't care and he can't decide anything for himself. He lets everyone else in the world make the decision seemingly really because he doesn't see the difference between one course of action versus another course of action. He feels just as guilty at every point. He figures if I don't care and you do, well, we'll just do whatever you want. Why not? His goal is to escape that guilty feeling, but the universe won't let him. This is the Merceau of part one. And this is the Merceau that arrives on a beach, shoots a man, and then allows us to walk away from the passage wondering if it was his fault that he just killed a man who he likely didn't even know his name nor hold anything against. Oh, so many Freudian layers. <laughs> My gosh. You know, uh, ironically for me, the day of the murder is really uh, the happiest day in the entire story. And uh, so much so that uh, out of nowhere, we see Merceau having uh, this thought, and I quote, for the first time, maybe, I really thought I was going to get married. I mean, for the first time, he's thinking in the future and not in the exact present moment only. Well, that was just a glimmer of minutia. (laughs) That's going to go away. Yeah. If we think about it in terms of guilt, which I really think we should do, we can see this book being about three deaths for which Merceau considers in regard to his own guilt. In the first instance, Merceau is connected to and held responsible for the death of a woman he did not kill, a woman he loved. That is sentence number one. The second death is the death of a person that Marceau is 100% responsible for killing, but whose death he did not wish nor even intend. In this case, we're made to question the degree to which he is responsible for what he did. I mean, there's not a question of whether he pulled the trigger. There's no question. He wasn't even provoked. Marceau is, in that sense, at fault. The final death, though, will be his own in part two. And it is in facing this final death that Merceau finds some semblance of happiness, peace, and incredibly absolution of guilt. And it's not because he has a secret death witch, because I don't think he does. He doesn't want to commit suicide. But he'd rather face the guillotine than live dishonestly. And it is in facing hopelessness that he finds this something that we might call a higher calling, Again, if I'd been his mother, I'd say, I'm glad you got your higher calling, son, but shelve it just for a minute. Play the game. <laughs> because honestly, it seems obvious that he had just played the game even a little bit. He could have gotten out of the string of events that would that eventually did lead him to the guillotine. For sure. Uh, and as we know from history, in the uh, context of colonialism, 
The, the murder of an Arab by a Frenchman would not have been considered a serious crime. Again, if you read uh, Things Fall Apart with us, uh, we saw that play out in that book as well. And in most cases, something like this, uh, with just a little cooperation from the defendant, it, it would have been handled to ensure uh, a minimum penalty. But Camus won't let Marceau play the game. I mean, <laughs> he seems to want us to look at the culpability of this crime in a strange way. And, you know, we are not meant to feel sympathy for the for the victim and his family, that is for sure. They don't even play into our understanding of events at all. And we're interested in only the forces at play in Marceau. And so this is not a story about a man versus man conflict. Uh, we're dealing with forces that are greater than just a man. So why do we have a baseless and senseless murder? Yeah, and this is where I feel like I'm wading into those philosophical weeds from which we can get into a lot of trouble with you know scholars who have different answers to that question. I mean, Camus, with his descriptive style, leaves so much that's ambiguous. He plays around with symbols and forces us to draw some very personal conclusions there's room to argue, but I will have to go at it and uh, at this murder scene uh, because we just have to. But here it is. We are at the arrival at the fullness of absurdity. Oh, finally. <laughs> Nothing is more absurd than death. Uh, in fact, that is what defines absurdity. We yearn for life, but we eventually will face death. So let's look at this one from the perspective of the murderer. The name Merceau. It's interesting in how it breaks down if we're going to translate it into English. It literally could be translated two different ways. You could translate myrrh to mean sea and so to mean salt. So the name could mean sea salt. Or it could mean myrrh as in the present tense of I die and salt as, a, as, as salting as in you leap. So that name could be translated die leap. Let me throw that at you. That's their absurd hero, Merceau, a man who is taking a leap toward the ultimate absurdity itself, death. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's say he is, uh, but why do that? Uh, one thing you can say about Merceau is that he's really not an unhappy person. He's not dissatisfied. He's not greedy. Uh, he actually expresses a great deal of satisfaction and even happiness. True. All that is true. But think of the first sentence of the myth of Sisyphus. What does Camus think is the only question really worth asking? Should I commit suicide? Merceau is all of those things, but at the same time, he can't escape guilt, boredom, inertia. That's the trifecta. He probably could handle a lot of suffering. People do, but they have a hard time handling guilt, boredom, and inertia. If we want to put it in terms, a Christian might understand it by calling it original sin. I am guilty because of my nature, not because of my behavior. This is irrational. And for Merceau, it's the impasse. He wants out of that conundrum. It makes him extremely uncomfortable. The scenes on the beach are full of sun and are incredibly uncomfortable from the moment Ramon pulls out the gun. The sun stops the world. There's the sea, the sand, the sun, the silence. There's intense heat. It's worth reading. It occurred to me that all I had to do was turn around and that would be the end of it. 
But the whole beach, throbbing in the sun, was pressing on my back. I took a few steps toward the spring. The Arab didn't move. Besides, he was still pretty far away. Maybe it was the shadows on his face, but it looked like he was laughing. I waited. The sun was starting to burn my cheeks, and I could feel drops of sweat gathering in my eyebrows. The sun was the same as it had been the day I buried Maman, and like them, my forehead especially was hurting me, all the veins in it throbbing under the skin. It was this burning which I couldn't stand anymore that made me move forward. I knew that it was stupid, but I wouldn't get the sun off me by stepping forward. But I took a step, one step forward, and this time, without getting up, the Arab drew his knife and held it up to me in the sun. The light shot off the steel, and it was like a long, flashing blade cutting at my forehead. At the same instant, the sweat in my eyebrows dripped down over my eyelids all at once and covered them with a warm, thick film. My eyes were blinded behind the curtain of tears and salt. All I could feel were the symbols of sunlight crashing on my forehead and indistinctly the dazzling spear flying up from the knife in front of me. The scorching blade slashed at my eyelashes and stabbed at my stinging eyes. That's when everything began to reel. The sea carried up a thick, fiery breath. It seemed to me as if the sky split open from one end to the other to rain down fire. My whole being tensed, and I squeezed my hand around the revolver. The trigger gave. I felt the smooth underside of the butt, and there, in that noise, sharp and deafening at the same time, is where it all started. I shook off the sweat and sun. I knew that I had shattered the harmony of the day, the exceptional silence of a beach where I'd been happy. Then I fired four more times at the motionless body where the bullets lodged without leaving a trace. And it was like knocking four quick times on the door of unhappiness. So the sun made him do it? I mean, what does that mean? And isn't that the million-dollar question? Camus makes Merceau innocent here. He doesn't hold him responsible. The son's responsible. And yet he's not innocent, obviously. He's guilty by choice. He shoots the Arab once, then he pauses and he shoots him four more times. Camus carefully creates a separation between the arguably involuntary shot and then the four that were absolutely on purpose. Merceau actually stopped after the first shot and then starts up again. This is about assuming guilt. Merceau wants something with this. He wants to be guilty, to understand himself as being guilty, where before nothing meant anything, as he said over and over again, he has now committed a specific offense for which there is a concrete association with guilt. Merceau had not wanted to look at his mother's dead body. He didn't understand why he felt that generalized guilt. But here, Merceau understands. He looks, to use his words, he knows he broke the equilibrium of the day. He has come to feel responsible. Responsible for the first time. And uh, I know I'm getting ahead, but my mind goes here to Camus' later writing. In The Rebel, uh, he says, Conscious comes to light with revolt. Uh, this feels like revolt against the universe and maybe even against God, if you will. Oh, definitely it is. And it is rebellion and it is re re uh, revolt. And these, of course, are the themes for episode three as we try to break down part two of the book, which is the optimistic side. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> one. At the end of part one, Rousseau will not say anything. He reacts in silence. 
Shooting the arrow four more times was like, and let's quote this, knocking four quick times on the door of unhappiness. (laughs) Well, I I guess he's not happy about killing an Arab. I mean, you know, there was no vengeance. There was no thrill or bloodthirst. You know, just the door of unhappiness on a day that had actually been pretty happy. Yeah, I think so. Some say we will always have to wade through unhappiness to get to consciousness and to peace on the other side. I think, you know, Camus kind of leans in that direction. The sun, if we cannot figure out or agree on what it symbolizes, if nothing else, expresses something that is subjugating our hero and from which he finally feels an overwhelming compulsion to revolt. He knows it won't help. He knows he can't escape the sun. But this metaphysical need to fight back, that's the sentiment. Hmm. Uh, you know, and, and so we see for the first time our apathetic character that can never do anything on his own accord. He finally acts upon the world. I mean, it's a negative act to be sure. It's a terrible act and one that's going to cost him. But for Camus, that's the beauty of art. Merceau's act is necessary and not just for him, but for us as well. We cannot confront the absurdity of our own lives, Camus believes, without assistance. And in some ways, Merceau's murder of the Arab is an act of conscience for us too. And if we can arrive at it with the aid of art, perhaps we can also push through the door of consciousness without those four condemning knocks of our own unhappiness, or at least without, you know, some horrifying stinging consequences there at the end. (laughs) Wow, Christy, that is really living vicariously. (laughs) I I think I just heard you say, if we feel the need to murder the universe, read this book and let Camus do it for us to avoid all the messy cleanup, you know, like an Agatha Christie-style detective story. Yeah, I I think it's something like that exactly. (laughs) Oh, so encouraging and uplifting. You know, uh, and I say that is with as much sarcasm as I can oh, muster. Oh, and yet not. But you're promising me redemption in yes, the next indeed. section. Uh, well, there you go. Next week, uh, we will walk with Merceau through the long and claustrophobic trial scene and watch his world play out in yet another uh, set of strange metaphysical contradictions. The absurd conclusion to the absurd. <laughs> Always with the absurd, more absurdity. So thanks for listening and being with us today uh, during our deep dive of Camus and absurdity. Uh, we ask that you follow us on all of our social media outlets. We uh, also like to encourage you to go to howtolovelitpodcast.com. Check out the new merchandise. We have hoodies and shirts and coffee mugs and all kind of fun things that we uh, think you need to give as gifts to your good friends. Anyway, thanks again for being with us. Peace out.